Hello, everyone. This is Brad Thomas with iREIT, and we're back again with another roundtable. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with Drew Babin. Drew is the Senior Managing Director at Medical Property Trust. The ticker symbol is, of course, MPW. Uh, Drew, thanks for having us today. Thank you, Brad. Happy to be here. Great. Well, Drew, uh, first off, before, uh, before the uh, call here, I look, look back at the history and my first article on, uh, on medical property trust has been in November uh, 12, 2012. So, uh, you know, just over, what, eight, eight years, almost eight years now. Uh, so we've watched this company evolve uh, quite a bit um, over, over this time frame. By the way, the title to that article was, uh, or is, uh, Medical Property Trust Diagnosis for More Dividends. So, uh, you know, that was my diagnosis back in 2012. We were pretty bullish on the company. Uh, just looking back at the time frame, and again, uh, we've been covering this company now for about eight years. Uh, you've really evolved now into a much, much larger uh, REIT. Uh, now, you know, uh, ventured over into, uh, into Europe with a lot of growth there. So uh, at a very high level, Drew, can you tell us about uh, the platform today? Sure, today we own 390 properties. Um, we're now in nine different countries, over 42,000 beds. Um, lots of operators, I know in the early days of the company, um, Prime was a large tenant for us and at certain points a, a very large tenant. Um, now we don't have a tenant that's over 25% of the portfolio and we have 45 different relationships. Um, so I think that's one area where we've definitely grown. Um, at this point, we're the second largest hospital owner in the U.S. Um, so yeah, scale definitely has its advantages here. You mentioned Europe. Um, you know, we were involved initially in ger the German uh, inpatient rehab market. But since we've done some large transactions where we also own general acute hospitals, um, primarily in the U.K., um, but also in Switzerland and then obviously continuing in Germany, um, so, but still about two thirds of our business is, is US based at the moment, uh, but still a similar model in terms of lease structure, long-term triple net leases, no maintenance CapEx, the operator handles all of the capital expenditures, um, very predictable cash flows, um, long duration leases. And that's how we like it, very predictable, uh, very supportive of um, dividend growth and, and predictability of cash flow. Um, but that's in a nutshell, uh, what we currently are. Great. And, uh, you know, since Medical Property Trust is really the only pure play hospital REIT, um, you know, we cover Ventas and a number of these, I guess, indirect peers, but there are really no direct peers. So how does that, uh, how does that provide your company with kind of a competitive advantage in terms of your, um, you know, your business model? And if you could address, I guess, as well, how hospitals have, have performed uh, during COVID-19 uh, currently? Sure, I'll start with the last point. Um, our operators especially performed very well during COVID. I think if you had to come up with the perfect gauntlet to test uh, the U.S. hospital system, it, it would have been COVID and the initial response to it. Um, I think what's more challenging in the ongoing impact of the pandemic um, is the government um, shutdown of elective procedures um, late March, April, early May was really where things got the, were really at the, at the worst. And at that point in time, many of our facilities were in areas that were not seeing the, the outbreak of COVID and were basically ordered to stop operations um, and really were not getting many COVID cases in the door. Um, so frankly, that's where we probably saw the most just operating um, 
turbulence. Um, but that said, um, the government st stepped in in a major way and, and frankly way beyond our wildest dreams in terms of the support that they lend, not only in Medicare advances to operators that need them, but also just in the form of grants that do not need to be paid back. Um, in fact, our top U.S. operators were proud to report didn't even use the Medicare advances um, and therefore owe nothing back. Um, but the grant money was exceptionally helpful in, in filling that hole um, in the second quarter. But we're happy to report that today utilization levels at the facilities are back in the, the mid, mid to upper 90% range and at some hospitals over 100%. And we echo the same numbers globally. Um, and frankly, in some economies in Europe, things have come back even faster. Um, or in the U.S., it's kind of taken till you know, right now to really kind of get back to that level. Um, lots of elective procedures that were delayed. Um, I think elective is a word that's kind of misrepresented. A lot of elective procedures are definitely medically necessary and, um, you know, are, are surgeries that extend people's lives and, and livelihoods, certainly. Um, and they can't be put off forever. They need to be done at a certain point, And more and more people are comfortable coming back to hospitals to getting these procedures done. And obviously, that's very important for the profitability of our operators. So we're happy that our operators are back in a place where they're not relying on government funding. The grants plugged the hole they were intended to plug. Um, and from here on out, our operators, our top, our top five U.S. operators have over $5 billion in immediate liquidity um, in terms of their own cash revolver capacity um, and grants and, and other Medicare advances that are on their balance sheet of which they're not using, um, but that liquidity is there if they need it. And so we feel very good about not only the way our tenants are operating right now, but also the liquidity position they're in um, and certainly the, um, the levels of operations that they're back to here. Can you remind me what your first question was? Uh, really just differentiating from, you know, some of the peers and you really address that. I mean, I guess, you know, while you were speaking, I was just thinking about, you know, the fact that hospitals are, you know, these are large, assets. Typically, what I've heard uh, is around $100 million to build a, build a hospital. So it's, it's, not, uh, you know, it's not easy to build one. They, they're uh, very high barrier to entry uh, you know, structures. Uh, and then you compare that with malls, which also cost around $100 million to build. But obviously, uh, there's been a massive overbuilding of mall space you know, in the U.S., but not so much in the hospital sector. So can you just talk a little bit about just the, at a high level, you know, the value proposition for, you know, for owning a hospital asset? Sure. Well, obviously with COVID, I think we all understand a little better now. And we've been saying it for a while, but I think it's kind of cemented. The way Europeans think about hospitals is that it's mission critical infrastructure. The community needs it. If it was not there, the community would have a problem. Um, and we just saw what that looks like in, in certain areas where we ran out of hospital space. Um, so, you know, relative to malls, we know people are always going to need healthcare. We know that there's certain healthcare services that will never be provided in people's homes. Um, the most acute life-saving procedures occur at hospitals, um, and a lot of surgeries that don't occur at the hospitals themselves and occur in an outpatient setting um, are directed through the hospital, and, and, you know, they're all part of the same system. Um, discharges to skilled nursing, LTACs, rehabs, other facilities, it all goes through the hospital. Um, and you know, certainly without that hospital anchor, um, where a lot of the administration, the research, the education occurs, the system would fall apart. Um, we have a stat, I think um, the 2018, um, the U uh, US healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP was about 18%. Hospitals were about a third of that. Um, and so 
a lot of healthcare spending goes through hospitals. We expect that to continue under any political regime. Um, they need to be there, they're anchors, and we own the ones that, that need to be open, that the communities need. Um, because we understand the hospital operating business, um, we have many people at our company that have been hospital administrators. administrators. Of course, Ed Eldag um, and Steve Havner have been investing in hospitals for a very long time, um, you know, over 30 years. Um, you know, this is, they're very familiar with the way hospitals work. They understand the businesses. This is why, um, you know, large sources of capital outside of, of, or, you know, outside of the public REIT space, you don't really see them competing for a lot of our assets, especially domestically. It takes special relationships, special skill sets, that's a special understanding of how the business works. Um, you know, globally, there are some other um, funds that we do compete with. Um, but, you know, unlike some other property types, we're not in these, um, you know, heavily marketed um, auctions for deals where, where pricing gets super robust. We, you know, we, we do, we're in a position of, of, you know, relatively strong leverage where um, we can work with the tenant to come up with something that's mutually beneficial um, that's going to work for a long period of time. And I think being public as well helps the operators um, really feel aligned with us that we are going to be here as a public company existing for the entire fully extended term of the lease. Um, that's important as well. Um, we don't have an exit strategy. We're not looking at the next five years um, because lives are at stake. The, the hospital's operations need to be fluid. They need to be predictable. Um, and they need to know that the landlord is going to, you know, be there for them. Um, and, and, you know, the rent is a relatively small part of their operating cost structure. Um, and it's, you know, frankly, the most important for keeping the facility running. Um, and so it's something that's repeatable and something we've been doing for a while that we really believe in. And frankly, the, uh, the opportunity set that we see globally is, is only increasing. Well, you, we, that was my next point, actually, is a global expansion. Drew, I was a little skeptical, to be honest, back, I don't know, five, six years ago, whenever you started to, um, you know, pivot into, into, your, into Europe. Uh, Germany, I think, was the first one, if I recall. But you've really proved the model out. And I give, your, I give your company and your management team a lot of credit for uh, being able to navigate, you know, global expansion. Can you touch on that a little bit? Sure. Obviously, investing in other countries around the world has its own unique challenges with you know, every, every country has its own healthcare system, their own way of doing things, different degrees to which medicine socialized. Um, Germany, the initial opportunity we saw was really on the inpatient rehab side. Um, culturally, um, rehab hospitals are very important in Germany. Um, people take pride in working for a long period of time. They don't retire early. Um, and the concept of a rehab where somebody can get back out on their feet and get out is very, um, it's very utilized and it's very important. And, and we've, frankly, the way that those facilities have performed, have performed is excellent. Um, and as you know, we, we sold a joint venture interest in those a couple of years back at a large gain. Um, you know, and I believe the, uh, the cap rate that we sold those at was uh, around 300 basis points lower than where we were initially invested um, because of the success of that investment. And so we feel very good about that initial foray. Obviously, we're not done. We've done a lot of other things in Europe. And really, the largest thing that we've done is the, uh, the BMI circle deal we did in the first quarter. Um, almost $2 billion US, um, where, where Circle's now operating this portfolio of hospitals in the UK. And you know, what, what's been very, um, very fortunate is during COVID, the way that the UK handled it, um, the NHS in the UK has stepped in and covered all the operating costs, not only of public hospitals, but privately run hospitals. 
And so they've made us whole, they've guaranteed essentially to make us whole on our lease payments, regardless of what's happening with COVID, regardless of whether facilities are being idled or shut down, it doesn't matter, it's being covered um, by the government. Um, and so there's obviously um, very widespread, very um, steadfast support of the healthcare system in the UK. Um, and, you know, beginning, these relationships existed for a few years now, but to go through this together with them and for uh, the UK to see the value in private hospitals um, has been great. And I think that ties to something else um, that we saw both in the US and globally, where in many cases, private hospital operators were much more nimble. Um, a, um, if they were forced to shut down elective procedures and um, COVID patients weren't necessarily coming in, from a profitability standpoint, they were actually able to adjust their staffing levels relatively quickly and get some of the operating costs down temporarily while they were forced to run at lower capacity. But likewise, they were actually um, much more able to secure PPE or PPE um, to provide care to COVID patients when necessary. Things like ventilators, um, they were able to move personnel, doctors, nurses from facility to facility based on need, and they were willing, willing and able to work with public hospital operators um, in the same areas to identify which hospital might be best to keep all the COVID patients at, what other hospital might be a better place for people that were you know, in the hospital without COVID to transfer them somewhere else. There was a lot of coordination between the private and public hospital operators and with the government. And I think you know, coming through the other side of it, um, it was proven that, frankly, everybody, everybody did a great job responding to it. And I think the private hospital operators really prove their worth and, the, and their flexibility in dealing with this and also their willingness to just work with the public sector and in the middle of a crisis and, and you know, do so very effectively. So um, again, coming out of this, we feel very good about um, just the, the prospects of further expansion of private hospitals here and abroad. Right. You touched on some asset recycling uh, internationally. Would you mind uh, discussing the balance sheet a little bit and some of the some of the balance sheet policy that the company has in place currently? Sure. So currently as it stands, or I should say after the second quarter, um, we have no balance on our revolving credit facility, which is $1.3 billion. Um, we had I think a few hundred million dollars in cash. So a lot of immediate liquidity. Um, we had a net debt to EBITDA ratio a little bit above six, which historically the range we like to be in is in the five somewhere. Um, and so it's a little bit higher. Um, obviously, last year was a huge year for acquisitions. We bought $4.5 billion of properties. Last year, we've already acquired um, you know, well over $2 billion year to date this year. And so our leverage is a little higher than where we would want it. But that said, we also don't really have the immediate capital needs. Um, and we have plenty of liquidity. And so, you know, we're certainly not going to do anything just to get a number lower on paper, um, just to say we have a leverage ratio under six if we don't have an immediate use for the proceeds. Um, and, you know, we, we have an, um, an at-the-market equity facility um, with over $800 million in capacity um, for funding as well. And so we have many different options um, in the form of ATM issuance, um, a lot, some kind of larger deal, uh, forward equity, um, or even dispositions. We have a lot of options. Uh, to source capital um, because we continue to see a very robust pipeline. Um, our pipeline as a whole really hasn't slowed because of COVID. Um, we don't think yet that it's necessarily picked up because of COVID, but we do believe that you know, there could be some consolidation and things that create opportunities down the road. Um, we do think that this is going to be something that creates more opportunities than it defers. 
Um, but for the time being, um, we're always working on a very robust pipeline and um, there's always things coming down the pipe that we're looking at. We see everything um, and you're going to see us execute on, on deals where they make sense for us. And um, these are deals that are you know, almost always um, immediately accretive to earnings. Um, and certainly we believe in the quality and the underwriting of what we buy. And we think that our track record has really kind of proven out our, our very high batting average on the way that we underwrite these deals um, for the long term. Um, but that's about it on the balance sheet. Yeah. Well, kind of moving into one of my last questions, which always in that, and, and I know Medical Property Trust, by the way, has been fairly receptive to a retail to its retail investor day, base. I know you've, you've grown the institutional coverage uh, over the years quite a bit, uh, which, you know, your background, of course, but, uh, but you've always been, uh, you know, somewhat aligned with this retail investor. Uh, I know, you know, as of the last few years ago, you started to increase the dividend. It was a while before it was static for a couple of years, um, but you have been able to increase that dividend. So can you talk a little bit about your, I guess, your dividend policy and kind of what you feel like a, a safe payout ratio looks like? Sure. Um, we prefer to be kind of in the high 70s, um, low 80s max. Um, if you look at consensus AFFO estimates for 2021, that represents a payout in the high 70s. Um, now, we, we certainly have investment activity in things, even that we've pointed to in our earnings release that aren't in our guidance run right yet. And so, you know, as our, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is our AFFO estimates increase um, as our guidance increases. We like where we are from a coverage ratio right now and you know, believe that the dividend should move you know, relatively in tandem with our earnings growth. Um, you know, the next time that our board evaluates the dividend, you know, I think we'll probably see where we are in terms of COVID um, and whether you know, there's any kind of uncertainty that, that may have emerged related. But certainly we think we're through the worst of that at this point. And so our expectation would be we keep that dividend moving. Um, we think we have plenty of cushion to do that. Um, and, you know, something I've always observed as a buy side analyst, as a sell side analyst is great REITs that perform well over time are the ones that grow their dividends. Um, and, and we believe, we know that we will be a, you know, a dividend growth story. That's our expectation. It's what we've been. It's what we will continue to do. Um, and, you know, while our healthcare REIT peer um, weighted average dividend or AFFO payout has now come down into the 80s, it's because we've had three dividend cuts in the sector year to date. Um, that have gotten that payout ratio down from over 100% um, as other property types within healthcare have struggled in different ways with COVID. Um, our rent collections have been very strong. In fact, 98% on an annualized basis for this year. Um, and we expect to begin collecting all rent, all current rent in the fourth quarter. Um, we're in a very solid position. We're moving forward. We're continuing to grow. And there's really no reason why we wouldn't continue to grow our dividend you know, relatively on pace with our cash flow growth. Great. Well, Drew, this has been very helpful for me and I'm sure for our uh, audience as well. Um, I look forward to seeing more of you again. Um, it's always great to see uh, the transparency um, and the interaction uh, your company has had with the retail investor base. So again, I really appreciate your, your time and, and, and conducting this interview. And uh, I wish Ed and the rest of the management team, I wish them the best and hopefully we'll see you again very soon. Sure thing. Thank you very much, Brett. Thank you.